Hi, and welcome to Economist on Zoom, getting coffee. This is a podcast about informal conversations with leading economists and the big questions that keep them busy and that are relevant to all of us. I'm your host, Danny Bahar. In this episode, Economist on Zoom Getting Coffee host Carol Graham. She is the Leo Pasvolsky Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she's also a professor at the University of Maryland and a senior scientist at Gallup. Carol is a renowned scholar known by her pioneering research uh, that is part of a growing and exciting field of study known as economics of happiness and of well-being. In fact, Carol is recognized as one of the most influential scholars in this field. She is the author of numerous books on this matter, which I highly recommend to all of you. Of course, she also has many dozens of peer-reviewed articles in some of the most influential journals. With Carol, we talked about the most important findings she has had in her research when tracking people's happiness and well-being, both in the US and around the globe. We also discussed a crucial question that I think is relevant to all of us. Is being rich what makes you happy? Or maybe is being happy what makes you rich? Without further ado, let's just dive into it. Carol Graham, welcome to Economist on Zoom, getting coffee. Hey, thanks for having me, Danny. Since I can't see you in the office these days, we can do cheers with a coffee mug over Zoom. Yeah, here you go. I'm having just espresso for, for a change. For a change. Um, Carol, well, you're, you're my colleague, which I think people would know. You, you work across uh, the aisle from, well, not across the aisle, but along the aisle from me right. when we used to have an office. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to have you in the show is because I, I myself, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your research and I think it's really fascinating. And, and I think for an economist in general, you know, to learn about things that most people think are not measurable, um, but that are so important, uh, it, it's something quite fascinating and important. And you've done a lot of that. I mean, I think that you are recognized as a person who has basically one of the founders of this field called economics of well-being or economics of happiness. And, and I'm super thrilled to have you on and to, to talk about all your research and your policy recommendations on this topic and, and so on. Um, let me start by asking you this question, which is you, you've, you know, you've worked for many years and you've done a lot of uh, different studies with in different countries about measuring people's uh, well-being in different ways. Um, before I ask you about how you do that, I want to ask you maybe what is the biggest finding or the most intriguing finding for you that you've had um, looking at all this data and those different countries throughout all these years? Well, thanks, Danny, for having me. I love this series, so I'm really happy to be a part of it. It's such a great idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could talk forever about all the different findings and the determinants, what determines well-being and why it's so um, consistent around people in countries around the world, poor and rich. But one of the things that I started wondering a long time ago, um, in about 2002, shortly after I got into all this, 
was that you know we were working a lot on what makes people happy in the in the colloquial sense and what determines well-being in a more academic and scientific sense and spent a lot of time looking at the determinants of of well-being among um you know obviously among um, populations around the world and taking a lot of care to make sure we were measuring different dimensions so how you experience your life versus how you evaluate your life but I asked a question to myself and then we we were able to find some data to test it with which is well what I wonder if well-being causes things right what about what if the causal direction is in the other way and so we wrote um, and published with two wonderful research assistants, Sandeep Sukhtankar, who's now a professor at Dartmouth, and Andy Eggers, who is at LSC. He, he became a political scientist, but they were both Brookings research assistants. And I had some data for Russia, Russia, panel data from Russia at a time that things were very unpredictable, which played into our favor. And we found basically that individuals with higher levels of this unexplained well-being, so just some sort of character um, trait and genetic traits and everything else interacting was actually correlated with better future outcomes in the income arena, in the health arena, and in um, even in the social arena, more friendships, you know, kind of just better, uh, better lives in that arena. At the time, everybody laughed at us. And the, you know, the, the, the typical comment was, well, no individuals are happier or more optimistic we also looked at optimism at that point um in t1 because they can predict that they'll be wealthier in t2 you know they have more means and they can predict that well two things played in our favor there one between 95 and 2000 in russia nobody knew where they would be five years from now income wise the ruble had crashed they just switched from communism whatever so and then secondly, our finding was actually more important for people with less money, not people with more money and means. I know that um, you've been also doing, you've done a lot of work in developing countries um, and you've been the recent years, you've been looking in particular at the US for any particular reason, is it more data driven or is it more the, the particular questions that you think? No, it's despair, it's despair driven. So yeah, I mean, I grew up in Peru between Peru and the US most of my early work, I, I was the first person to look at the determinants of well-being in poor countries versus rich countries because we had more data for rich countries at that point. And with Marta Lagos, a Latino Barometro, we got well-being into that big survey. And then we were able to, as Gallup, the Gallup World Poll was up and running, we could look more closely at poor countries. And essentially, poor countries and rich countries have about the same pattern in terms of what determines well-being so income matters health matters employment matters income matters but it you know up to a certain point the certain point depends on the context where you live friendships and family they, there's also a direction of causality problem because as i mentioned happier people are more likely to make friends and get married or whatever um but i was you know i think because i grew up between both contexts for a long time, I mean, well before I even got into the study of well-being, I started thinking about why is poverty in the U.S. so much more depressing than poverty, not just in Latin America, which we know is a very optimistic place. Um, but I, I did work on safety nets and I, I worked in more slums all over the world, everywhere from, you know, Burkina Faso to Vietnam to you name it. Um, 
and I always found, well, I always found the Latin American poor to be the most optimistic. There was just some, there is something about the region in general. Anecdotically um, or data-based? It's data-based. Okay. I mean, it, yes, you pick it, you also pick up on it. it. It's, yeah, no, it, you pick up on it just by being there, but you accept extreme situations like Venezuela now or something, but, um, but no, database, it shows up that there's kind of a, an, an optimism and cheerfulness premium in Latin America. So they always score higher on reported well-being than their income would predict, like, you know, compared to other regions. But I kept coming back to the U.S. saying, what is it about this? Why, why is poverty here so much more desperate? Why are the poor so much more stigmatized, which is part of the, the sad story of being poor in the U.S., you know, because everybody believes if you work hard, you get ahead. If you fall behind, you're a loser. It's pretty hard to be poor, even if it isn't, your, you know, it, it, it isn't your fault. You were born into it or if you had bad luck. Um, so uh, I started thinking that maybe, and I, I did this in about, started this work in about 2015. So Donald Trump was campaigning, but nobody thought it was real. We didn't know about deaths of despair. We didn't realize that the most desperate group were poor whites. Um, but I, I started comparing the optimism about the future and belief in hard work across the poor and the rich in the US and the poor and the rich in Latin America. And I was amazed that the poor and the rich in Latin America were equally likely to believe that hard work would get them ahead versus the rich in the US are 20 times more likely to believe hard work will get them ahead than the poor. And the poor in the US are significantly more stressed, less likely to believe in hard work much less optimistic about their future than the poor in Latin America. So I thought, okay, I'm on to something, right? I, I need to find out more. So the American dream is more alive outside of America. You've got it, exactly. And then, so then I looked into, I thought I'll look across races, the, you know, the main three, the biggest groups in my data, um, because this was a time that Ferguson, the Ferguson riots in Missouri, the Baltimore riots, that there was a lot of concern about the African-American community and police violence as sort of precursor to George Floyd. And I compared poor whites, poor blacks, and poor Hispanics. And going into this, I thought poor Hispanics are gonna be the most optimistic group. Poor blacks are gonna be pessimistic because look what's going on. And poor whites will sort of be boring in the middle. Instead, what I found was that poor African-Americans were by far the most optimistic group, three times more likely to be optimistic about the future than poor whites. And Hispanics were sort of one in a, one in a third times more likely than poor whites to be optimistic, but it really was African-Americans that stood out, poor African-Americans. So then I started asking, well, excuse my language, what the hell is going on with poor whites here? This is weird. We didn't know, Anne and Angus ha hadn't published that paper on deaths of despair. And it came out shortly after, and I remember writing Angus Deaton and saying, look, your findings and my findings are saying the same thing. You're using CDC data, I'm using well-being data, but this is a clear you know, anomaly that we didn't understand at the time very well. And their data showed all this you know, drug overdose and suicide and premature death. And my data showed despair you know, on a large scale among poor whites. So we tested them. We tested that out with Sergio Pinto, who's my brilliant PhD student at University of Maryland, um, whether our data on the, these differences in well-being across minorities and races and places linked with the deaths of despair. And in fact, they do. 
very closely. So you can track, we have, a, we now have a vulnerability indicator up on the Brookings website, but you can track the deaths of despair and high levels of stress and low levels of hope or high levels of despair, or whatever you want to call it, quite mean, robustly. What? What you mean by deaths of despair? Deaths of despair are what's driving up the U.S. mortality rate. We're the only rich country where mortality is going up rather than down, which is pretty remarkable. It's driven by opioid overdose, suicide, and alcohol poisoning among less than college educated whites. If you look at the patterns for Blacks and, and Hispanics, their mortality rate is going down at the same rate that the other rich country mortality populations are going down. Um, granted, they started at a lower life expectancy level than whites, but that gap is narrowing in part because minorities are making progress and in part because low-income whites are literally killing themselves, like 70,000 people a year from these deaths. And what we're finding with COVID, which is a whole other topic though, is that the all of the factors that were, you know, the kind of lack of hope, the shutting down of communities, the lack of good jobs or kind of jobs you expect to have, um, that's only getting worse. And so we're seeing an increase in a lot of the markers, both of despair and also of suicide and overdoses and other things. You're at Brookings, so you of course have thought a lot about policy. Um, so how, what do you think are the main or the main policy insight that uh, people should be aware of when looking at these um, trends over time? Or you know, what are the kind of things that we can do uh, from a policy perspective to uh, you know, help uh, the well to, to improve the well-being of people in general. So I think it's I think it's um, some are very simple. I mean, the equations and the metrics we use allow us to place relative weights on different things in people's lives and give orders of magnitude. I don't think you can talk about exact numerical value, but how much do people value health versus income, or how much do they value being employed versus you know, being unemployed and on welfare. The answer to both are that the, the health matters more than income and being employed, even holding income constant matters a lot to people. It's part of their identity. It's part of their dignity. Um, we know that autonomy and meaningfulness at work matters more than a raise. These things aren't emphasized in any of our traditional indicators and yet they seem to be incredibly important to people thriving and being productive. It isn't just about being happy, it's about being more productive. Um, so that's that's just what the basic data tell us. And um, I think having that in in out in more public, in more public information, just in a public domain. So people could read about these things in the same way that they read about how the unemployment rate is bad for them, right? That that could be just useful public education. More specifically, I think we should be tracking vulnerability. Um, if it weren't just me using Gallup data, tracking despair and seeing that it's associated with deaths of despair and that could have, again, not to be too predictive, but that it certainly preceded the despair and the suicides, that the rise in despair preceded the actual deaths is something we could be doing. And data that's in official statistics is much more likely to be incorporated in policy. That's just how it works and in people's heads and you know, and, and the kind of markers that they look for when they read the news. Um, and it takes some time for people to get used to it. So they have to, you know, it may take a couple of years if they're reading about it in their news, the way the Brits now do. At first it wasn't that, they didn't really get it, but then, then they understand 
what the difference is, what are meaningful differences. If you think about the unemployment rate, the average Joe on the street, if you say, you know, the unemployment rate went up by 1% last month, they'll go, wow, that's a lot. If you say it went up by 0.1%, they'll say, oh yeah, well, whatever. They couldn't tell you how many people are unemployed in each scenario. They have no idea, but they've gotten used to the metric. If you say the Dow Jones fell by X versus the Dow Jones fell by Y, I don't think they know how much money that means or how many companies it means, but they can look. That's a metric they've been used to. And then the last thing that I think is the newest area for well-being, and I think an area that's starting to grow largely from local bottom-up efforts here and in much more, I mean, in New Zealand, it's much, for example, much more central government um, in, in the UK, in Canada, there's been a lot more um, traction on this, but it's using well-being metrics to think about to develop interventions that can um, enhance well-being in places that are very desperate and isolated or lonely. And they're very simple kinds of interventions, you know, getting unemployed, desperate people out of their houses to volunteer in a group activity or to, you know, joint walks in the park or access to the arts. These things aren't expensive, but if you think about the kind of despair that underlies the deaths of despair, it's about being isolated, it's about having no purpose, and it's having no future. Um, so there's a whole range of new stuff growing in that area. I'm trying to do some pilot things. Um, again, that's the most, um, I, I wouldn't say out of the box because it's being done elsewhere, but it's the area that we, we've sort of seen less of here. And it's a, it, I think it's an area where very simple low cost interventions could make a very big difference. I have one more question for you because our time is, is um, ending unfortunately, which is the following. Uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, it is a fact that, you know, this field was not there when you started your career. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you were to talk to grad students or young faculty that are perhaps working on something that it's, you know, not a lot of people are doing it and they get a lot of weird looks when they tell their pitch. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you went through that uh, to some extent. And, and More than weird looks. What's your advice? I mean, you you actually persisted, and and you know now it's a whole field um, that you know carries your name, uh, and that's a huge accomplishment. So, what's your advice? What's your reaction um, if you were to tell people who are working on these issues that maybe are not as exciting for for most people as, as it is for them? So, I guess I I, I mean I would say again it's. It, for me, it was always worth taking a risk to do the stuff I cared about. Like even when I was studying poverty, learning from how people were thinking and behaving and making decisions at the household level for very poor people was incredibly illuminating. And I realized how much more sophisticated the poor, for example, in Latin America and hyperinflation were. I mean, they knew what the exchange rate was every night because mm -hmm. they put their money in dollars or soles and, or whatever. So I think that sort of intersect between human behavior, which isn't always predictable, and it doesn't fit the rational forecasting and discounting model that underlies so many economic models, was something I was really interested in. And it was more fun than the, you know, sort of kind of boring, very kind of, uh, not stagnant, I'm thinking um, versus interactive, whatever, whatever, static, that's what I was thinking, versus static models. but. Um, and then the other thing is like, I don't know, I just, I'm probably impulsive, but I like, 
I chose to stay at Brookings on grants versus going the normal tenure track route. I only, you know, I went straight from into a professor, but I'd never done the tenure track stuff. And I just, I worked on stuff I really cared about in an atmosphere that I loved and that was, I think, more supportive of new ideas than the, the sort of typical department, at least 20 years ago, that dates me. I mean, now I think you're seeing economics is already a much more expansive and interesting field than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't have to publish in particular journals or you know, I, what I needed to do had to be relevant and interesting. And I published in a whole weird range of journals. My CV is pretty weird if you look at it, but, mm -hmm. but I loved it. And I, you know, and I was productive because I was working on stuff I loved to do and that I was really interested in. And that, yeah, they were, I mean, it, it was, it was risky, but I, I mean, I think being surrounded by people who cared about, certainly about sound method and good economics and, you know, all the usual things, but actually were as interested in making the world a better place as they were in, you know, published. I mean, they did both, right? But that, 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 that second interest made people much more willing and interested in understanding how the world worked than just only how the models worked. Well, that, that's super interesting and, and well taken. Um, thank you, Carol, for, for being uh, one more guest in this uh, little show. Um, and, you know, I look forward to reading all your forthcoming research. And uh, I know you have a lot of work on COVID, which we'll talk hopefully next time but all of you go and check carol's website um there's fascinating stuff there well um, thank you danny for doing this series it's it's really fun I've, I've heard i can't say i've heard all of them but i've heard a couple of them and it's 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 a, it's a great idea um and particularly at this time that we can't be at conferences and some you know it, it does provide another way to just kind of pull us together around interesting topics so i, I really appreciate your having me thank you carol goodbye Okay, bye. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. I want to remind you that this episode is also on our YouTube channel, which you can watch anytime. You can also access it by going to our website, www.economistonzoomgettingcoffee.com. There, you can also sign up to receive our emails announcing all future episodes. Feel free as well to reach out to me with your questions, suggestions, or comments. My contact info and social media channels are on the website, which again is www.economistonzoomgettingcoffee.com. Finally, as we try to grow our audience, you can really help. Please take a minute to give us a rating and share with your networks. That can really help us getting some more exposure to more people interested in listening to the voices of these leading economists. Thank you and see you in the next episode.